0: Heavenly Father, we do come to you again based on and through the merits of our risen Lord Jesus. Jesus, we thank you. We thank you for you said you would build your church. You gave gifts to the church. You gave the church men, though weak, men graced by your calling, graced by your power, not their own, so that the surpassing glory would belong to you, God, not to me, not to a pastor, not to Nate. Father, I pray that as we share in your word today, you would open all of our hearts and minds to understand better the role of a pastor, because in that role, we we truly get a glimpse, a small glimpse in their role, and my role, of what, The great shepherd of our soul has done for us and caring for us and correcting us. So I pray as we study this this morning, I pray that we are mindful that, that it's Jesus who we're thankful for here. He is the great shepherd of our souls. So we pray this morning that we would exalt him. And Holy Spirit, we cannot do that apart from your power apart from your cleansing work and your illumination. So we pray for you, Holy Spirit, to open our eyes so that we may see truly wonderful things that are written in your law and that we, we may rejoice with one voice this morning at the work that you've accomplished and the work that you will continue till Christ comes. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. I'm trying to follow the command from Peter that Chris, Pastor Chris left us with last week when he said we need to examine ourselves to see if we are truly sanctifying Christ above all things in our life. And this week, as I was thinking about 1 Peter 3.15, I was thinking, am I sanctifying Christ in my role as a pastor as I ought to? And I must confess, I don't think that I am. I don't think sometimes I put Christ's glory up in front. Sometimes I think that, by my own confession last week, my pride gets up there alongside of him. And I repented of that last week, and I confessed that to you as a church last week. And God has commissioned me this morning to continue on in my repentance through Scripture and my rededication to you as a church, my rededication to you as one of your pastors. I'm speaking this morning for Pastor Nate as well as myself. So what I say is unified. We both agree to these statements and these duties and this great privilege and calling that God has placed on our lives to shepherd this local church. And, and I, I pray that you would be encouraged this morning in this rededication, this public confession of my duty. And in doing this, I'm actually calling you to hold me accountable to this duty. Now, I look at the duty, and I want to read the duties as we go through these texts. And, and frankly, humanly, it's impossible. It's got to be grace. It's got to be God's favor, that equips mere men to lead the body of Christ. And I'm thankful that we have God's Word, God's Spirit, and the Great Shepherd to guide us by giving us this revelation in Scripture of what a true shepherd should look like and what under shepherds should carry out. So if you would this morning, turn with me first to Psalm 23. We'll go from Psalm 23 to 1 Peter 5, Psalm 23, to 1 Peter 5. And just listen, I'm not going to expound, just listen to the word of the Lord here in Psalm 23, verses 1 through 3. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters." He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for His namesake. 1 Peter 5, verse 1 through 3. The Apostle Peter writing here, he says, So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you. Not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Not domineering over those in your charge but being examples to the flock these texts are both comforting and overwhelming to me (laughs) they humble me they make me desperate for God's grace I'm called to be an example to you that is frightening It's intimidating. I I ascend these steps with fear in my heart every week. Reverential fear for God, because I don't want to mishandle His church. I want to care for this flock. It's it's owned by Jesus. I don't take my pastoral calling lightly, because God doesn't take it lightly. (laughs) It says in this text, Verse 2 That I am to shepherd or oversee or pastor or be an elder in the flock that belongs to God. Not my flock. It's not my church. It's not my ministry. It's God's. Specifically, it's Jesus Christ's church. And I'm called to care for his sheep. The reason that under shepherds are necessary. It's because the great shepherd has ascended into glory. He has sent his spirit to equip us, his word to reveal his nature and his direction to us. And then he has not left the church as orphans in any other way either. He has given them guides and shepherds and overseers to be the mouth and the hands of Christ. Because sheep cannot fend for themselves. They're incapable of caring for themselves, yet God promises that he will guide them. The Lord is my shepherd. He will do this for his namesake. Jesus will get a precious bride because that's his will. He will care for his bride. He will wash her in the Word. It says in Ephesians 5 that Jesus died for the church. So that he can make her clean, he could sanctify her progressively. And he does that through weak vessels, pastors, under shepherds, elders, overseers. Jesus illustrates in Scripture, and we're going to look at a, a few passages here, so just be prepared to jot these down and go with me. Jesus illustrates that sheep need guidance and protection because, let me give you three things, then we'll go back to them. Here's why they need it, because number one, sheep are trusting, number two, sheep are helpless, and number three, sheep are precious. I become very agitated when people, especially pastors, co-pastors, not my pastors here in this church, but other pastors, brother pastors, say that sheep are ignorant or dumb. That is not really the way that the scriptures refer to them. It refers to sheep as those who need something. They need guidance, they need help, they're precious to God. They're not fools. And so many times I hear pastors speak in in derogatory terms about their own sheep. And I want to say, brother, pastor, they're a product of your work. Are you being faithful? And so I have to say that to myself. Am I being faithful to guard you, to help you to follow the voice of God, help you to feed on the bread of life, help you to feel God's sacrificial love that was expressed to you in Christ? Before I judge them, I have to judge my own heart. Am I speaking in my own actions in a derogatory way about you by not caring for you, by leaving you to fend for yourselves? Or am I laying down my life, as Christ laid down his life for the church, am I laying down my life to serve you, the church, that he purchased with his own blood? And so many times I think that we fail to do that as pastors. We get caught up in the machinery of ministry. Even in a small church, there are lots of rabbit trails that we can go down. And we need to be reminded. I need to be reminded. I need to rededicate to you that I need to be reminded this morning. So, sheep are trusting. So, Jesus illustrates that sheep need guidance and protection because sheep are trusting. John, John 10 tells us this. John 10, verses 2 through 5, simply states that sheep will trust the voice of God. This isn't a bad trait, this is a good trait. Notice it doesn't say sheep and goats trust God's voice. It's going to say only his sheep will hear his voice and follow the master, the ultimate shepherd. Let me just begin in verse 1. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. That would be Jesus. To him, the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice, they trust him. He's the good shepherd. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. Jesus is saying here in an illustration that sheep, they need guidance and protection. And when they finally hear the voice of their good shepherd, they will hear that as the voice that will lead them and protect them and guard them. And they trust him. I want to pastor you because you hear the voice of God in Scripture. You want to follow God because you trust in His promises. You trust in what He has accomplished for you in Christ. And it's my privilege to stand before you and declare His word so that you can follow Him accurately. So this attribute of trust is a good attribute that sheep exhibit. That's why you need to be guided. I need to make sure that when I deliver God's word to you, it is God's word and not my opinion. I need to make sure if I have someone filling this pulpit, they are faithful to the text that they will teach and preach the word, nothing else. This is not a place for programs and performances. This is a place to protect you and guide you to Jesus, to maintain the purity of his flock, his bride. Just think about the terms he uses, his bride. It's his bride that we're called to protect the purity of. Let no one defile her, right? They should not listen to anyone else's voice but their husband. And if a pastor is doing his job correctly, they hear the voice of their husband through their pastor, their under shepherd. Jesus illustrates that sheep need guidance and protection because, number two, sheep are helpless. Mark 6, Mark 6, 34. Sheep cannot defend themselves. They're not vicious animals, are they? They're docile, they're helpless. They need someone to intercede for them. And they need to be nourished. They need to be cared for. Sheep need to be fed. They feed on the bread of life here. Jesus has just fed the 5,000. And he comes down at the end of this in verse 34, and it says this. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion. The word is mercy on them. Because they were like sheep without a shepherd, and he began to teach them many things. Notice how the Lord Jesus helps the helpless. He doesn't give them more bread and fish. He gives them living bread. He gives them the doctrines of God. Sheep can't discern this on their own. They need someone to guide them. God has given under shepherds to teach doctrine. If a man in the pulpit is not teaching doctrine, he's not a pastor. He's not an under-shepherd. Jesus said, they're hungry. They need mercy. They need to be cared for. They're my sheep, so I must nourish them with good teaching. Teach them the word of God. Feed them on the bread of life because they belong to Christ. He illustrates that sheep need guidance and protection. Also, thirdly, because sheep are precious to Jesus. Luke 15. Luke fifteen, four through 7. Look how precious the sheep that Christ searches for are to him. It's always interesting when you read these illustrations Jesus gives of his work, his saving work, it's always he loves first, he seeks, he finds, he rescues. It's as if it's monergistic. It's as if these sheep who are helpless, yet precious to him, can't find their way on their own, so he Hunts them down in love and rescues his own. Luke 15, 4 says, What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? (laughs) When he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. My sheep that was lost. I found them. Oh, and I just can't help but think about this in, in the bigger context of what Jesus is doing. He leaves. He doesn't just leave the 99. He leaves heaven's glory, and he comes into this earth after his lost sheep. And how does he lay us on his shoulders? But on the cross. He stretches out his arms and we are laid upon him. Our filth, our wretchedness is laid to his account. He receives our wrath. There on that cross as he is receiving our wrath, God is pleased with his sweet offering and he he imparts to us and imputes to us, to our account, Jesus' righteous life. His atoning death. He puts that to our account. He saves us by the life and death of Jesus. And Jesus enters back into glory, ascends back into heaven, rejoicing at the sheep that he has purchased with his own blood. These sheep are precious to Jesus. They must be guarded. They must be fed. And they must feel God's sacrificial love in Scripture. Aren't you glad that Jesus is your good shepherd? Aren't you glad that he is the one who sought you? He's the one who bought you. He's the one who's going to bring you home to glory, and they're going to rejoice in heaven over what he has done in your life. They're rejoicing now. The angels, it says in verse 7, are rejoicing. Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Repentance. Jesus will bring that about. He is the good shepherd. Jesus is the word of God incarnate that we follow. Jesus is the bread of life that we are nourished on. Jesus is the sacrificial shepherd who laid down his life to rescue his sheep and allow us to feel God's sacrificial love for us. Our good shepherd has even done more than that. Much more than that. He didn't just live for us. He didn't just die for us. He has continued to promise to bless and keep us by giving you again his grace through weak vessels called under shepherds. Under shepherds are basically the ongoing token of God's love for you. Elders and pastors, though, at at best we're weak, I guess you could say, as weak as we are, elders and pastors, they're God's gift to you. And I think that would help cultivate humility in the pastor's heart if he remembers that. I didn't call myself to ministry. He called me. I didn't make myself worthy. He is working his glory out in me. It's his gifting. It's his calling. I'm not more intelligent or able than any of you. I am graced. That is it. And you are graced also. You have gifts. You have callings that I may not have. And I need you as well as you need me. And I want, to, I want to remind myself of this. I want to rededicate my heart to you this morning as an under-shepherd of Christ's church so that I can cultivate humility in my heart. I need this. I need this direction. I need this rededication. I need to make my pastoral commitment public and I need to make it clear. I did this three years ago when we began this work. I just want you to know my heart on this issue. Turn with me to John, John 10. I want you to understand why I stand before you and protect myself from any temptation by confessing that this is God's work and I must submit to his direction. I want you to know, in my heart, I want you to know the internal working of my heart. I want you to know that without a doubt, I love you. And I am serving because I love you, because Christ loves you. I love the sheep, I love the church, because Christ loves the church. And he's made that clear in John 10 11 through 15. And I want you to know that I, by the grace of God, am ready to do what he's calling pastors to do here. I am, I am by the grace of God, ready to live with you and die for you as your servant this morning. This is my commitment to you. John 10, 11. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Now understand this. Jesus didn't just die for the sheep. Jesus lived the righteous life we could never live. He fulfilled all righteousness. He fulfilled all the commandments in our place so that when we actually face God on that judgment day, we don't just stand before him with a a zero balance, a neutrality. We stand before him with a positive righteousness, that which is imputed to our account by Jesus. So when he says he lays down his life, Jesus is also referring to the fact that he became a servant. He became a slave to rescue Helpless, precious sheep who would one day trust in God. He says this in verse 12. Who is a hired hand and not a shepherd? Who does not own the sheep? Sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. That, folks, is a false teacher. As I mentioned last week, false converts hire false teachers. And what I want to make sure you understand is what a true what a true teacher, a God-ordained pastor is because one day I won't be here. God may call me home. But I want you to know that the church isn't built on me or my personality. It's not built on Nate. It's built on Christ. And if you know how to discern the true shepherd from the false, you will continue on in the faith and God will be glorified. Jesus says this in verse 14, "I am the good shepherd I know my own, and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me, I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. Prayerfully and by God's grace, I am committing to you that I am willing to do this. And Nate is willing to do this. It is by grace, though. Humanly, it's, it's difficult. You guys aren't perfect yet. That makes it a struggle sometimes. Sometimes. <laughs> but nonetheless, I'm not perfect yet. And by God's grace, He's still cultivating and working out my salvation in my own heart. And pastors are called to follow the compassion and mercy of the good shepherd who became a do loss. You know what a loss is? The word is servant in some of your English translations, it's not a good translation. The word should rather be slave. Jesus became a doulos, a slave, for the sake of his sheep. Pastors are called to follow his example. I am Christ's slave for you. I have no rights. My rights have been purchased by Jesus, and I belong to him, and you belong to him. He calls me to serve you. That is what I am dedicated to until I die. There's no retirement for pastoral ministry for me. Pastors are called to be servants because Christ was the great servant to his sheep. And understand this, it's not just out of duty for you. Duty to take care of you for for Jesus. It's not just out of duty, it's out of love. Jesus loved you and because I see that he sought you and he put a high price on you, therefore I should see that there is something working out in you that is glorious and I therefore should be a part of this and love you and care for you because Jesus does. He sees things that I can't see. And he says that you are precious in his sight. And he wants to make you more precious through teaching and growth in godliness. And I want to commit to you, I love you. I want to help you with that. I want to help you when you're needy. I want to help you when you're joyful. I want to help you when you're learning. Because, because when you're a, a high-maintenance person, I, I am hopeful that there's going to be high glory for Jesus' work in the end as He works out His sanctification in you. The higher the maintenance, the more the glory for Jesus, right? At the end. The more struggles, the more turmoil, the more glory to Jesus for bringing you through it all, carrying you through to the end, sanctifying you. And I'm looking forward to the day that I see you as a prize before Jesus. And I say, I remember. I remember this. I remember that struggle. Look how Jesus changed that person. Look at the growth. Look at the communion with God. Praise be to you, God, for this is your work. These are your people purchased by your son's blood. Pastors are called to labor at this. And they do that because God will be praised through the sanctification of his people. Look with me at 2 Timothy 2. God will be praised through the ongoing work of sanctification in your life. 2.10. The Apostle Paul is talking about suffering as a soldier, suffering for Christ's sake, suffering in a a world that is upside down in sin. And you understand something about 2 Timothy. This is Paul's swan song. This is the last writing that we believe he wrote before he was martyred for Christ. He is giving us his last will and testament as inspired by the Holy Spirit. And here is what he's saying. At the end of the day, after giving up everything as a Pharisee and coming to Christ and to be a servant and an apostle, being beaten and shipwrecked, persecuted, hated, cursed, he says this. This is what I want. This is it. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. He is willing to suffer all these things, to endure all these things, so that the church, as they are brought into conformity to Christ, will bring God glory on the last day. Now, I could go through and tell you how he does that pastorally, but I think we've covered that many times here as a church you can, go, you can look at it yourself a little bit later, but it's in 2 Timothy 4. Is really the pastoral mandate. I'm to preach the word. I'm to teach sound doctrine, healthy doctrine, hygienic doctrine, sound words. I'm to teach you. I'm to labor with you. I'm to rebuke and to exhort and correct you and edify you in truth. And I'm overwhelmed that I get to do that. Today's not a day to expound on all that, but today is a day that I get to rejoice in this. This is what I am honored to do as the ambassador of Christ to you as a pastor. I believe that I have the greatest honor in the world bestowed upon me by Jesus. There is no higher position on this planet than the position of a pastor. And there is no greater responsibility on anyone. There's no greater reason for humility and no greater reason for reliance on God's mercy and grace than this. I am called to nourish and protect, to guard and direct Jesus' blood-bought bride. You are his most prized possession. And I'm called to walk with you until he comes or until you go and direct you to him care for you and I can't do that on my own on my own or my own strength I have to have to rely on his grace but I also want you to know something pastoral ministry isn't just pulpit ministry that's a big part of it pastoral ministry is personal I can't do my ministry apart from God's personal work of grace in my heart and that grace in my heart drives me into the pews with you into your lives I can't shepherd sheep that I don't know If I don't smell like the sheep, I'm not a good shepherd. Shepherds smell like sheep. They do. That means they have to spend time with the sheep. That grace and that knowledge that I've been given by God, I am to to bring to you on your level personally and in the pulpit corporately. Shepherds are called by God, again, to be slaves for the flock, not just in the pulpit on Sunday. You better start here. Better be accurate here. Bet it better flow out to you personally. Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. Shepherds are called to serve Christ's church as slaves. Remember that. We're not called to be CEOs. We are not called. We're not called to be CEOs, this is professionalism over here. And we're also not called to be cold and calculating doctorates of theology. We're not we're not called to be that either. We're not just called to stand up here and spit out answers to you without love and compassion. There's got to be a balance here. Jesus was balanced. And we're to reflect Christ. John Piper wrote a book a few years back called Brothers, We Are Not Professionals. And I highly recommend you read the book. Pastors are not called to be professionals. We have a higher calling. We're called to be protectors. We're called to be stewards of God's bride. We're called to be overseers. Pastors and churches need this reminder. We need this reminder today because we have way too many CEOs. We have way too many program directors in pulpits. We have way too many professional theologians. And we don't have enough servants. We don't have enough servants who are ready to bleed and die for Christ's bride. We don't have enough servants who are not only ready to die, but to live with Christ's bride personally, intimately, laboriously. Jacob and I went to, together for the gospel a week ago, and one day we were honored by Southern Seminary to be asked to come to one of their luncheons where Dr. Russell Moore spoke and addressed young men who may feel called into pastoral ministry. And the setting could not have been better. We go down the street from the Louisville, Kentucky uh, Convention Center, and we go down to this place called a war museum. And we go upstairs. And Dr. Moore stood in that museum and he called men to battle. Pastoral ministry, he said, is bloody. You must be willing to die and to live in that warfare because the prize is great and the glory of Jesus will be exalted and displayed through that work because you are reflecting his love and care for the church. It was very fitting that we spoke and talked in a war museum about pastoral ministry. It is difficult. It is hard but the prize that I look forward to in the future that I can lay at Jesus' feet is glorious. And I see it in all of you. The Apostle Paul tells us that pastors are called to serve as Christ-like servants. Look with me at 2 Timothy 4. This was Paul's own testimony. I want to read 4, 7 through 8. I want you to know something. If at the end of my days I prove faithful to this, I want somebody here to have them put this on my tombstone. But only if I prove faithful. Only if you can say this with good conscience. Only if I stand before you day in and day out in this pulpit and in your lives, interceding and serving you like Christ. If I don't do that, don't allow it. If I don't live in this text, I have no right to have this be my memorial. 4, 7, and 8. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved His appearing. We are called as pastors to live in verse 7, fighting the good warfare, the battle for the glory of God and the good of his people. We are to do so all the way to the end of the race. We are to keep or protect the doctrine, the faith that we've been given once for all, delivered to us by Jesus. Jesus himself was the one who set this pattern for us. Jesus, understand this, was, was was the greatest of all preachers. And he was the greatest of all pastors. Jesus would stand or sit on a mount and preach to thousands, and they would be captured by his words, and they would listen intently, and then he would take disciples and say, I need to explain these things to you personally. So Jesus was the greatest of the shepherds because he knew how to both, both comfort and correct and work these two together perfectly, seamlessly. He knew how to spend time with the sheep, both publicly and intimately or individually. And that's the pattern that the Apostle Paul followed. That's the pattern that I'm called to follow. When you read Acts 20, I'm not going to read it right now, but when you read Acts 20, you can see that the Apostle Paul at Ephesus says, I spent three years with you in your homes, in the pulpit, in your homes, in the pulpit, and now I don't have to be ashamed because I was faithful to the calling God gave me to protect his flock and prepare you for my departure. Paul followed Jesus. He comforted and corrected them. He did so personally. Jesus did so personally. You think about Jesus. He takes his disciples along and he, he's teaching them while he's eating with them, while he's fishing with them, while he's walking with them. And we as under shepherds, are called to follow his example. We are not greater than our master. These pastors who think that their, their highest and greatest function is to stand in a pulpit and pontificate to you, they've missed their calling to follow Jesus intimately with you. And look, the reason we have co-elders is because obviously even as we grow numerically, I can't do this as I, as I want to. But as we expand and God raises up men, co-elders, we can multiply ourselves through that ministry. We can intimately get to know you, work with you, labor with you, cry with you, weep with you when you weep, rejoice when you rejoice. Pastoral ministry is a calling that is intimate, I'm commanding you to follow me at times as I follow Christ. If you don't know me intimately, you won't be able to do that. If you aren't examining my personal life, you won't be able to do that. If I'm not first and foremost pastoring my wife and my boys, you have no business following me. I am to cultivate godliness there first in the small church so that you can follow my example in your homes and in this church. So pray that I do that more faithfully. Pray that I don't neglect my family. Because they come first, after Christ, then you. Look with me at Second Timothy, a little further back here in chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. Jesus' under-shepherds are called to follow his example, the example that Paul set here. And one of the ways we're called to do this, and the command we're called to, to follow here, is, is to disciple one another in particular, men, to lead the church. We're implementing a new discipleship program here. Nate and I are going to be meeting with individual men who submit to our direction and work with you one-on-one, giving you a syllabus of books to read and scriptures to be accountable to every day. We're going to initiate this in May. And once we have finished a six-month cycle, we're rotating these men and after one year in this mini seminary, they will then seek out someone else in this church to disciple. And that will be a pattern that they follow. And here's the pattern. Here's where I derive this pattern from 2 Timothy 2 1. He says, You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men, Who will be able to teach others also? This this program that Paul was initiating here was one that he saw modeled in Jesus. Jesus took 12 men, one who ended up being an apostate, and then later on he picked up Paul, right? And he ministered to him in the desert. But he picks these men up and he disciples them. And listen, This command in Timothy, when you read the entire context in 2 Timothy here, this isn't just a command for pastors to find other faithful men who are going to be pastors in the local church. No, this is to look for faithful men. It has nothing to do with pastoral qualifications here. We're to look to faithful men. Find faithful men, men who are serious about following Jesus, discipling others, and evangelizing the lost. Find those men. Instruct them. Teach them, guide them, do so privately, not just corporately. That's what Jesus called us to do. So we're going to do that here. We begin that in May. If you're interested, see me afterwards. Pastors have to exhibit this kind of discipline, this kind of work, publicly and privately. They do so because they have to display God's work in them personally. Look back with me in 1 Timothy four eleven. Well, this is a passage you don't often hear at ordination meetings. This is a passage you don't often see taught in the pulpit. It's a shame we don't do this. But this is important. This is the only way you can evaluate my ministry is to know this text. Here I'm being told what to do by the Apostle Paul. Command and teach these things. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example. The word is typos. It means a stamp, a tool that makes a deep impression Pastors are to make a deep impression on the flock or cut a path for the flock to follow as they follow Christ. Make a deep impression in speech. Make a deep impression in conduct. Make a deep impression in love. Make a deep impression in faith. Make a deep impression in purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. That's the duty of a pastor. Exhortation and teaching, reading scripture, read the text, explain the text, apply the text. Do not neglect the gift that you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things, immerse yourself in them. And why? Why why is he commanding us to do this? So that all, that's the church, may see your progress. That's my progress, Nate's progress. Keep a close watch on yourself, that means my life, and on the teaching, that's my doctrine. Persist in this, for by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. I need to pay close attention to my progress and sanctification and my doctrine that I proclaim to you. I need to grow in both of these areas, so much so that it's evident to you from the outside looking in. I need you to see in my life a growth in godliness toward my wife, toward my love for her and my kids. I need you to see a growth in my doctrine in the pulpit. I need to be challenged and challenging you more so to dig deep into Scripture, to look at theology and doctrine more accurately. An elder is called to do this. And an elder is called to do this in such a way that you feel as if you're a part of his life because Christ Great Shepherd is actively a part of our life. And He calls for you to see His work through your under-shepherds. This example of my life is commanded here in Timothy 4. This example in my home, in my life, and in my growth is meant to build into the church a living example to follow. That's why pastors are called to do this. That's why you must hold me accountable to this. I'm to be a living example, a living epistle of what God has done in my heart through his word, by his grace. And you can't do that if you don't know me personally. So I must get to know you intimately, personally. Mark Dever wrote in a book called The Deliberate Church, he wrote this about pastors. He commends this to us. He says, pastors, be knowable. You are a sheep too. You need relationships just as much as anyone else does. That is the nature of the church. It is a godly web of mutually sanctifying familial relationships. Now, that's what I hope we're already cultivating here. But we want to excel still more at this. We want to cultivate this. And I want to cultivate it in a way that it's not showing favoritism to one family, doing things with them, but I want to spread this out. And if if we have shown favoritism to you, then you need to tell us to go talk to somebody else for a while because we need to focus on everyone equally for the glory of God and the good of his flock. An, elder, an elder's life, a pastor's life, is to be full of devotion to Christ and it should overflow onto you in, in your life. We should be, by our saltiness, if you will, compelling you to find out what is the hope that lies within us. You should be asking us. I can see that you've set Christ apart in your life, and now I want to know about this hope. What is this hope that you have that's transforming you? Because I want to follow you as you follow Christ. This is a high, this is hard to preach. This is a high calling. Apart from grace, again, I can't do this. But by His grace, I am equipped to do this. And you can follow me. See, here's the thing about pastoral ministry and these these qualifications this is kind of tricky. You follow me because you're commanded to do these things also. The high calling and the qualifications, that's just minimal, basic Christianity. I set the standard as as the example, but then we're all to walk in that. That's the reason you cut a path. It's not just so I can be out there by myself. I may lead, I may go through the battles first, but you can follow. And God wants you to follow the patterns that are set before you. But to do that, I must know doctrine. I must know theology. I must study but I can't spend all my time in an ivory tower, right? I can't stand in the ivory tower and study and then tell you guys what to do. I must grow in knowledge so that I can walk with you. Pastors must study to lead well, to guide well, to protect. It's essential to their own personal growth, and it's essential for you as well. Pastors are to study hard so they can live hard with the sheep. In other words, live in the hard times with the sheep. Pastors are called to study well so they can comfort well when they weep. Pastors are called to study well so they can correct them when they drift into false doctrine. Pastors are called to rejoice when his people repent and it's open. And that comes through study, study of their heart, study of the truth. And it also comes with walking through the hard times with you. I want to walk closely with you, pastorally. That is my heart this morning. And I want to walk with you theologically so that when I correct you, you know it's because I love you. Close caring also means close correcting. Sometimes my love may feel more paternal than friendly. Pastors are commanded as they study the hearts of the sheep, and they study God's word, they're commanded by God to bring both comfort and correction. Let me look, let you look at a text in 1 Thessalonians that, that shows us this. We can see this here. 1 Thessalonians 2. Comfort and correction, according to the Apostle Paul, as he's inspired by the Holy Spirit, comfort and correction are twin pastoral sisters, if you will. Look what it says here in 1 Thessalonians 2.5-8. And then 9 through 12, and this is heavy stuff for me to read because this is is what I need. I need grace to do this. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ, but... We were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves because you had become very dear to us. That's comfort, church. He says, We express to you motherly comfort." You were so affectionately desirous to us that we gave you not only the truth, but we gave you our lives. Church, that's what a pastor must follow. If I'm going to honor Jesus, I must look like this. I must comfort you like this. I must be willing to say I'm going to give up everything for your sake. And then verse 9, we don't just get comfort, we also get correction. We got mom, and then we got dad. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. This is building up to correction here. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses. This is a a witness of his sacrificial fatherly kind of love here. And God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers, for you know how Like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. That is corrective fatherly love. He doesn't have to do this if they're already walking the right way. He's saying, I can do this because you've seen I love you like a dad. I've worked all night I've labored hard with my hands so that you know I really care about you so that when I come with the rod and correct you, you know it's because I love you. So pastoral ministry must be both, comforting and correcting. Comfort and correction are essential for the health of Jesus' bride. Comfort and correction, though, will not be received and accepted if we are harsh If we are unloving and unknowable, it will be received and accepted much easier if, if it comes from a pastor who is willing to walk with you hand in hand when you go through the difficulties in life, when you go through the joys in your Christian life, when you work together, labor together, love together, and weep together. If you see a man who is faithful to do that, you will follow his correction. Listen to what Richard Baxter wrote. wrote, Our work requireth great skill and especially greater life and zeal than any of us bring to it. It is no small matter to stand up in the face of a congregation and to deliver a message of salvation or damnation as from the living God in the name of the Redeemer. It is no easy matter to speak so plainly that the most ignorant may understand us and so seriously that the deadest hearts may fill us and so convincingly that the contradicting cavaliers may be silenced. Then Baxter says this, The whole of our ministry must be carried on in tender love to our people. When the people see that you unfeignedly love them, they will hear anything and bear anything from you that you bring to them. Therefore, see that you feel a tender love to the people in your breasts and let them perceive it in your speeches and see it in your conduct. Then he says this, Let them see that you spend and are spent for their sake and that all you do is for them and not for any private ends of your own. I think the private ends of your own that Baxter is talking about is pride. It is pride. Let them see that you serve them not out of your own arrogance, your your own confidence, but out of your love for Christ and his love to them. I want you to know this is my desire. I want to follow Baxter here. I want you to know that I desire to be approachable to you. I desire to serve you. Nate desires to serve you because, well, because we love you, first of all. We're committed to giving our lives for Christ's church, giving our lives to comforting you and correcting you. And I think if you know that we love you, you'll receive both well. We do this because we know that Jesus loves you and laid down his life for you. So it's our desire that we reflect Christ to you. And I am thankful that he allows me to do this, and I am humbled by this. And I want you to be encouraged by his ongoing work that I pray is evident in our lives. And if you see an area that is, it is not evident, please help us. Let us know how we can excel still more in godliness for your sake and for the glory of Jesus. That's our desire. So let me, let me just end with this. I want you to pray. I want you to pray that we will, in the next year, make evident progress pastorally in this church. Because I can tell you this, you all have made evident progress in your sanctification in this church. I can look back over three years, especially the last year and a half, two years, and I can see marks of God's grace that are very distinct in your lives. And Nate and I rejoice about it privately. And now you're you're rejoicing with me publicly. I see God at work in you. And that is to his glory. And his work's not through. So he's progressively cultivating this work in you. And I pray that as we labor together for the long haul, he will be praised through the saints of sovereign grace as you grow in godliness and in love for him and for one another. Let's pray that that happens this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the church. We thank you for your design, for your power, for your ongoing work in the church that's evident in the church by your spirit. We thank you for the truth that sets us free to serve Jesus with conviction and with compassion. Father, I know that this morning there are people here who may not know you. And in your grace, I pray that they heard the gospel of how you care and comfort sinners and how you can penetrate the darkness and bring us hope. And I pray this morning they would repent of their sins, that they would confess that they've offended you, a holy and righteous God, and they would turn to the righteous one, Jesus the Messiah, who lived our life and died the death we deserved and rose victorious to declare that you accepted his sacrifice in our place. I pray that you would save this morning and that you would sanctify your people, the people you purchased with Christ's own blood. I pray that you would be magnified in our lives in Jesus' name. Amen
1: holy uncreated one your beauty fills the skies but the glory i the same. is not like you